You know, this week we continue the story of Joseph as we find it in the book of Genesis. The last time we were with Joseph, he had just been given the keys to the kingdom. And yet, despite how things were going for him, despite how things had finally turned his way, we saw through the names that he gave his children that he was still in a land of suffering. And yet God had used him in that place of suffering. God had used him to provide for others. And God had drawn Joseph into a deeper relationship. And God does the same thing for us. He does the same thing for us. What a blessing to know that as we suffer and struggle, God has not abandoned us, but is with us, growing us and using us to his glory. This week, as we prepare to once again follow along in the journey of Joseph, I'd like to start with the story of Corey Tenboom. I've told the story of Corey Tenboom before. The young Dutch woman whose family helped Jews escape Nazis during World War II. Her family was discovered and put into a concentration camp with the people that they were trying to save. She alone survived. After the war, Corey returned to Germany to bring the message of God's forgiveness to a people who were wrestling with the sins of their past. In 1947, at one such meeting in Munich, Corey had an encounter that would shake her to the core. A man had come to listen to her speak. He was a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat with a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. And as he approached, Corey saw him for what he had been. His overcoat became a blue uniform and the brown hat a visored cap with the skull and crossbones affixed to the brow. The man had been an officer in the concentration camp her beloved sister Betsy had died in. This man had been particularly cruel to Betsy. And here he stood before her, humbled but seemingly unpunished for the many crimes against humanity, against her and her family that he had committed. And often when we hear this story, it is from the vantage point of Corey, the struggle that she had to give to this man, the forgiveness that God had given to her. And we can relate to that. We know how it can be hard to forgive. We, we totally understand that. Who hasn't been hurt deeply by another person? Who hasn't struggled to forgive? And though the shoes we often choose to fill in this story are quarries, I would like for us this morning to put on the shoes of another. Today we are the heavyset man in the gray overcoat, fumbling with a brown felt hat. A man whose past he's ashamed of, a man who had done many wrongs, many wrongs, had done horrible and devastating things to other people, a man whose past haunted him. It wouldn't leave him. He was worried that it would forever define him. Can we relate to this man? Are there things in our lives that we have done, that we have struggled to move past, things that haunt us, knowing we need forgiveness, but knowing that we do not deserve it. How are you doing with that? This morning we're in Genesis 42, and we'll see that Joseph's brothers are not doing well with that. 
Life has not been good to them since Joseph was sold into slavery. Yes, they have survived. Yes, their families have grown. Yes, God has continued to be their God. But in our text this morning, we'll see that their past has continued to haunt them. They have not been able to outrun the things that they have done. Their guilt has been a burden that they have been unqualified and unable to bear. In the beginning of the chapter, we read that Jacob, Joseph's father, hears that there is food in Egypt. You see, the famine that Egypt was experiencing was being experienced by the people surrounding Egypt as well, including those living in Canaan, like Jacob and the rest of Joseph's family. And so Jacob sends his son to Egypt to buy grain. But he doesn't send all of his sons. He keeps his youngest son, Benjamin, behind because he's afraid that harm might come to him. Now, this is over 20 years after Joseph was sold into slavery. Remember, he was 17 when his brothers sold him, and he was 30 when he was given the keys to Egypt. And then there were the seven years of plenty, so this is taking place during the seven years of famine and a little way into it. So Joseph is between 37 and 40 years old at this point in time, which means at least 20 years have passed. And in those 20 years, Jacob has barely matured. He's still playing favorites. He's still protecting the, and favoring the child he had with his favorite wife, Rachel, above the children that he had with his other three baby mamas. This family has not been able to move on from what happened with Joseph. And we will see that clearly as the story continues. So the ten brothers head out for Egypt to buy grain so that their families will not starve. Now Joseph is the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all of its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrive, it was Joseph that they meet. Now they did not recognize him. How could they? He had been given an Egyptian makeover. He was clean-shaven, dressed in expensive robes, walking and talking like an Egyptian. The brothers, however, looked like the same dirty shepherds they had been 20 years earlier. Their beards, maybe a bit more gray. They had more weather and worry lines on their faces, but Joseph had no trouble recognizing the brothers that had sold him into slavery all those years ago. Our text tells us that they bowed down to him. And as his brothers bowed to him, Joseph was reminded of the dreams that he had had all those years ago, the dreams that were now coming true. Here they were, the bundles of grain bowing before him. But what was he to do? He did not trust his brothers. He knew how the Lord had been working in his own life, but he did not know if the Lord had been working in theirs. And so he came up with a plan, a plan to test them to find out who his brothers were and what they had become. In the same way the brothers had accused him of spying on them for their father, Joseph accused the brothers of being spies. They fiercely denied it. They told him that they were from the land of, of Canaan, that they had come to buy food, that they were honest men. They tell Joseph that they are ten of twelve sons, all belonging to one man, but that one son is still with the father and the other son is no more. But Joseph does not listen to their cries of innocence. He throws them in prison, saying that their story must be corroborated, that one of them may return home to retrieve the youngest brother. But the rest of them must stay in prison until that youngest brother has arrived in Egypt as proof that their story is true. And he let the brothers 
contemplate this proposition for three days as they sat and rotted in their jail cells. We'll pick up with our text this morning, reading from Genesis chapter 42, verses 18 to 22. We read the word of the Lord. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take your grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. And now we must give an accounting for his blood. That ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. The brothers had spent 20 years living life after they had sold Joseph into slavery. They had taken wives, had children, held celebrations, traveled, and feasted, and yet they had not been able to move past the guilt and the shame of their past. It still haunted them. Here they are, 20 years after the fact, and something bad, something that they don't understand is happening to them, and they return to the moment when it all went wrong and say, this is why this terrible stuff is happening to us. We are now being punished for that sin that we did all that time ago, those, those 20 years ago. It is finally caught up to us. We knew we shouldn't have done it. We knew it was a mistake, but we did it anyway. And the time has come to pay the piper. Shame and guilt are hard things to move on from. We are constantly waiting for the other boot to drop. When I was growing up and still in elementary school, my mom and dad would put all of us kids to bed at the same time. I'm the oldest of eight, so it felt a little weird going to bed at the same time as my you know, younger, like five-year-old siblings, but I wasn't ready to go to bed when they were, right? So, so when I heard the soft and steady breathing of my siblings, I would take a book and, and I would crawl to the light in the hallway and I would read. But, but what's reading without snacks? I knew where mom and dad had a huge bag of peanut M&Ms up in the top shelf of the cupboard. And I knew that mom and dad were downstairs in the basement watching TV together and they would never hear me. There was a rush of adrenaline when I would sneak down the stairs onto the counter and come away with as many peanut M&Ms as my little hands could carry. Sitting in the glow of the upstairs hallway light, munching on my stolen treats and reading a good book felt fantastic. Until the guilt and fear set in. The next day, any time my father or mother called my name, I was sure that I was busted. I was sure that they had found me out, that they counted the M&M bag and found ten missing or I hadn't put everything back in its proper place on the counter or in the cupboard, or maybe, maybe I'd left the bag open. I don't know how they had found me out, but they must have. 
and I would respond to my parents in shame, and then they would ask me how my day was or if I could change a sibling's diaper, and I would feel relief that I had not yet been found out, but it would do nothing to alleviate the impending sense of doom for when they would eventually find out. My sin, my guilt, my shame, my fear had caused a rift in my relationship with my parents because I was constantly worried that they would find me out, that they would realize the sinner that I was and how I had sinned against them and I was fearful of the punishment that they would bring. The fear and guilt and the shame that my sin caused me damaged my relationship with my parents. Their rules were not unjust or unfair. Don't take candy that doesn't belong to you. Don't eat candy right before bed, after you've brushed your teeth, because it could rot your teeth. These rules make sense. They protect my neighbor, and they protect me. But I didn't like them, because they didn't suit my needs, my wants, my desires for candy in a good book by the quiet light of the hallway. So I did what I wanted to do instead of what I knew I was supposed to do. And then I would spend my days waiting for the punishment that I was sure was coming and I knew I deserved. I would spend my days on edge waiting for my parents to find out how I had sinned against them and for them to punish me. And in my fear and guilt and shame, I would put boundaries between myself and my mom and dad so that I wouldn't be found out. I would distance myself from them so they couldn't get close enough to smell the chocolate on my breath. My sin separated me from my parents, not because they stopped loving me, not because they stopped wanting the best for me, and not because they were just itching to catch me doing something wrong so that they could punish me. No, it was me doing the separating. It was me causing the distance. It was me waiting for the other foot to fall and building walls between myself and them, trying to protect myself from what I knew I deserved. And just as I have done this in my relationship with my parents and others in my life that I have sinned against, I have done this in my relationship with God. I have at times distanced myself from God because I'm scared of the punishment that he would bring upon me if he knew just how big a sinner I am. There are times that I fear that if he knew how badly I had messed up, how intentionally I had gone against what I explicitly knew he wanted me to do, that he would give me the punishment that I knew I rightly deserved and that he would cast me out. I know that his laws, like the laws in my parents' house, are there to protect me, are there to protect others from me, but there are times that I struggle with caring about that because I'm concerned with what I want to do, what will make me feel good. And so, like the brothers in our story, I cast my brother into a well. I do what I know that I shouldn't, but what will serve me in the moment. And then comes the guilt and the shame. Can anyone else relate to that? How are you doing with that? As we relate to the brothers in our text this morning, let us look at how Joseph responds to them. The ten brothers are woe is me down in the dungeon, and Joseph overhears them. And what is his response? Genesis chapter 24a. 
or sorry, 42, verse 24a, he turned away from them and began to weep. Joseph is not excited about the plan that he has set in place to bring reconciliation to his family. He got them all locked up in jail. This just isn't, like, this isn't the reunion that he wanted or he had looked forward to. The road doesn't get easier at this point. It's still going to be hard for them. There are still more hardships ahead for the brothers, for Jacob, and for Joseph. But the ultimate goal, the ultimate plan, is reconciliation. As Joseph hears of the guilt, shame, and sin confessed by the brothers, and as he recognizes the necessity of the hard road ahead, he is brought to tears. And the tears of one who is bringing reconciliation but is aware of the hard road ahead hearken to another man in a garden who wept and knowing the hard road of reconciliation that he had in front of him, he asked, please, Father, please, if it is at all possible, take this cup of wrath from me. But not my will, but yours be done. Jesus Christ, his followers asleep all around him, knew what was in front of him, and he knew the hardships that were in front of these people that he loved. He knew that the cross was before him, that this very night he would be betrayed, and that so very soon he would be hanging naked and beaten on a cross, dying for the sins of the world, and because of those sins he would be abandoned by his father. He knew the hard work of reconciliation, the hard work of bringing broken mankind back into personal relationship with God, and the knowledge caused great tears to well up in his eyes, roll down his cheeks, and mark the cloak that he was wearing. But though the knowledge caused him to cry, it did not cause him to stop. He went through with the Father's plan, submitted perfectly to the Father's will. He was mocked, beaten, tortured, insulted, and humiliated. He was nailed to a tree, a cross, a cruel death reserved for the worst society had to offer. And as he hung on that cross, he became sin for us. He took all of the sin that we will ever do, the sin of the brothers casting Joseph into the pit, the sin of the guard at the concentration camp, the sin of a young boy stealing his parents' M&Ms and the sin that God has brought to mind in your life. He took all of that sin and he died for it. He paid the price for it. So that when we believe in him, when we rest in the faith that he has given us, we are no longer clothed in rags stained by sin, but we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That is the true for the guard at the concentration camp. That is true for the young boy stealing candy. And that is true for you. Christ died for the sins of the world, all sins for all time, the sins of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Christ died for all of them. And because of this death, because of this work on our behalf, when we believe in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we are given faith, we are forgiven, and we are reconciled to God. What a fantastic and wonderful truth. What a beautiful promise. And yet we have a hard time believing it sometimes, don't we? We still tend to find ourselves like the brothers in our text this morning. 
After Joseph finished weeping, he turned to them and continued with his plan of reconciliation. He chose his brother Simeon to be the one that would stay behind, and he had him bound, tied up before the other brothers. Then he gave orders to fill the bags of the rest of them with grain, but he also instructed his people to put each man's silver back in their bag with the grain, and the brothers loaded up their donkeys and left. Well, on the journey home, when they stopped for the night, one of the brothers opened his sack, and there was the silver. When they all arrived fully at home, and the other brothers opened their sacks, they all saw that they had their silver returned. And how did they respond? Our text tells us this morning that they were frightened, that their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done for us? Joseph so shows them grace, returns to them the money they used to buy what he had decided to freely give to them, and they respond with disbelief and fear. They are now waiting once more for the other brute boot to drop. They're waiting for the catch. What's next? And man, we can relate to that too, can't we? It's natural for us to think that God wants to give or wants us to give him something for the work of Christ on the cross. That there must be something that we contribute to the relationship. Like the brothers need the grain, we need the love of God, the favor of God. And where the brothers use silver to pay for the grain that they need, we use our works to pay for God's favor. So how do we feel? When God tells us that our works are not required for his love, but that he has given his love and favor to us freely, that he has poured out his grace over us at no cost to us. Where we should be overjoyed, we sometimes are fearful. Those works were the best things that we had. If God doesn't want those works, then what does he want? What else do we have to give? How is he going to extort us now? In our sinfulness, we, like the brothers in our story this morning, turn something that is good into something that is scary. Church, friends, there is nothing that we can do to earn the love and favor of God. There is nothing that we can do to make God love us more. And there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. There is no price tag on the love of God. And so all of the payments that we have made toward earning God's favor are returned. Not because God is trying to trick us or humiliate us or hurt us, but because they are not needed. There is no price that must be paid in order to be loved by God. There is a cost to discipleship. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a fantastic book with that exact title, but it has nothing to do with God's love towards us and everything to do with how hard it is to live in a sinful world and battle the desires of the sinful nature. That it is not easy and there are sacrifices and struggles in the life of every Christian that are not fun or pleasant. There is a cost to being a Christian, but the love Grace, mercy, and favor of our God are freely given. How thankful I am for a God that loves and forgives. Though like Corey Tenboom, it may take us a while to forgive those who have caused us unspeakable pain. 
we can rest in the truth that when we are the guard, when we are the one who has caused the pain, God forgives. There is no other foot that falls. We will go through hardships in life, but that is not because God is mad at us. He has forgiven us and is, in fact, with us through the trials and pains that life brings. And though the shame and the guilt of our sin may cause us to fear God and the consequences that we know we deserve, may we be able to rest in the reality of the grace that God has poured out over us through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. God loves you. The sin, guilt, and shame that haunt you are not enough to overcome God's grace for you. He has forgiven you. And when in your sin you run, he chases you. When in your sin you build walls between yourself and God, he tears them down. And as we see in the story of Joseph, and as we know from our own stories, God is constantly using the hurt and the pain that the world heaps upon us to draw us closer into closer relationship with him. The one place that we can find true healing and true comfort. What a fantastic, wonderful, gracious, and loving God we serve. Amen.